Well, today is Septuagisma Sunday, and so this morning we'll spend some time considering uh, what the fathers and doctors teach about Septuagisma and Lent. First off, uh, what's the meaning of this season of Septuagisma? St. Augustine. There are two times, the one which runs on amid the temptations and anxieties of this life, the other which will be spent in rest and everlasting joy. These two times we celebrate here on earth, the one before, the other after Easter. The time before Easter signifies the sorrows of this present life. The time after Easter, the heavenly blessedness which we shall enjoy. Therefore, we spend the first of these times in fasting and prayer, and the other in songs of joy, and there is no fasting while it lasts. So before Easter, this whole period of Septuagisma stands for our, our time of trial in this life. And then, of course, the, from Easter through the octave of Pentecost stands for heavenly blessing and, and the, you know, the, all eternity. Please, God, will be, be, all be in heaven. Well, what's the meaning of the name Septuagisma? Where does that come from? What's that all about? Okay. Uh, Dom Anselm Schott, a Benedictine wrote many years ago. According to Holy Mother Church, two places have reference to these two seasons before and after Easter. The two places are Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon is the type of the world fallen into sin, where the Christian must spend his time of trial. Jerusalem, the type of the heavenly fatherland in whose bosom he rests from all conflicts. The people of Israel, whose history is a picture of that of the whole world, were exiled from Jerusalem and held in captivity in Babylon. This captivity lasted 70 years. To set forth this mystery, the church has chosen the number 70 for the days of expiation. Septuagisma means the 70th day. Now, it's not literally. This is 63 days from from uh, Easter. It's 63 days from now, but that's what they pick because it stands for the 70 years in exile. We're in exile here. The whole idea of being in, in the violet, is to remind us we're in exile. It's a time of penance and suffering and all that. We're not where we, where we were meant to be had Adam not sinned. So here we are for these liturgical 70 days, uh, groaning, so to speak, in, in slavery to sin and the current human condition and yearning to get to heaven, which is what the Easter season signifies. So that's what the violet, why we violet during, during this season, why we're right, violet self, uh, signifying penance and mortification, the kind of things we have to do in this life, and then white during the Easter season, signifying, of course, heavenly joy there. Okay, the third question, well, we, and a fourth question, why don't we sing the Alleluia? The Alleluia is gone till, uh, till Easter Vigil, you know, and then there's a whole gob of them on Easter Vigil. It's pretty cool. All right, well, here's Abbot Rupert writing about this uh, liturgist from the Middle Ages. Alleluia is like a stranger amidst our other words. Its mysterious beauty is as though a drop of heaven's overflowing joy had fallen down on earth. The patriarchs and prophets relished it, and then the Holy Ghost put it on the lips of the apostles, from whom it flowed even to us. It signifies the eternal feast of the angels and saints, which consists in their endless praise of God, and in ceaselessly singing their ever-new admiration of the beauty of the God, on whose face they are to gaze for everlasting ages." This mortal life of ours can in no way attain such bliss as this, but to know where it is to be found and to have a foretaste of it by the happiness of hope and to hunger and thirst for what we thus taste, this is the perfection of the saints here below. 
For this reason, the word Alleluia has not been translated. It's been left in its original Hebrew. It means uh, praise, praise God. It's been left in its original Hebrew as a stranger to tell us that there's a joy in his native land which could not dwell in ours. He has come among us to signify rather than to express that joy. So that's the meaning of Alleluia. And it, 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 so we're sharing in with, with um, the angels and saints when we say that. Well, why don't we sing it right now? Well, to understand that, we'll turn to the book of Psalms. In Psalms 136 uh, is, is a psalm. I'll read the first six lines of it. This is a psalm that's written by, it's a psalm of David, but it's written about the people in exile in Babylon. So there they are in Babylon, and they're longing to be back in the promised land. They're in exile. They've been taken down in chains. And so here's the inspired word of God. Upon the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Sion. On the willows in the midst thereof, we hung up our instruments. For there they, they that led us into captivity asked of us the words of songs. And they that carried us away said, Sing ye to us a hymn of the songs of Sion. How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand be forgotten. Let my tongue cleave to my jaws if I do not remember thee. If I may not Jerusalem, the beginning of my joy. So in the psalm... Again, it's this type, they're in Babylon, they can't sing these beautiful songs of the promised land because they're there and they're mourning and groaning, you know, because here we are. How can we sing about the beauty of our homeland when we're stuck here in Babylon? That's the very idea in the liturgy. How can we sing this Alleluia when we're here in Babylon, so to speak? And that, so that's what the church is bringing forward to us. Here's forward to us. Here's the great incorruptible Benedictine Dom Garanger, the founder of the Salem congregation on this very thing. Quote, During this season of Septuagisma, we have to gain a clear knowledge of the miseries of our banishment. It was therefore necessary that we should be put on our guard against the allurements of our place of exile. It is with this view that the church, taking pity on our blindness and our dangers, gives us this solemn warning. By taking from us our alleluia, she virtually tells us that her lips must first be cleansed before they again be permitted to utter this word of angels and saints, and that our hearts defiled as they are by sin and attachment to earthly things, must be purified by repentance. Let us then comply with the law the church thus imposes upon us. If spiritual joy is thus taken away from us, what are we to think of the frivolous amusements of this world? And if vanities and follies are insults to the spirit of Septuagisma, would not sin be an intolerable outrage on that same spirit? We've been too long the slaves of sin. Our Savior is soon to appear bearing his cross, and his sacrifice is to restore fallen man to all his rights. Surely we can never allow that precious blood to fall uselessly on our souls as the morning dew that rains in the parched sands of a desert. Let us with humble hearts confess that we are sinners, and like the publican of the gospel who dared not so much as to raise up his eyes, let us acknowledge that it is only right that we should be forbidden, at least for a few weeks, those divine songs of joy with which our guilty lips have become too familiar, and that we should interrupt these sentiments of presumptuous confidence which prevented our hearts from having the holy fear of God. So the Alleluia is put away to remind us of where we are and to remind us not to fall so much in love with the things of the world, but to start detaching ourselves, the violet the fact it's it's more sober right now, and then, of course, as we go into Lent, it gets even more strict and sober. All these things are to remind us of these realities, okay? What about Lent? Why is Lent 40 days long? 
before I get into that, in the very early days, during St. Gregory the Great, because of the weeks, uh, it's been moved up to, to exactly 40 days, but it used to be 36. It was 40, when you have uh, uh, six weeks long, it's 42 days, but all the Sundays come out of it. So 42 minus 6 is 36 days, and as St. Gregory the Great pointed out, it was a tithe of the year. We're paying a tithe by our penances on the whole year because we're here to sanctify times, too. And so by doing our penance for that, it was the tithe on the whole year that we're offering to God. Anyway, St. Jerome, it's now literally 40 days with Ash Wednesday because the Sundays fall out, of course. St. Jerome tells us that the number 40 symbolizes punishment and affliction. As a punishment for the sins and crimes of man, of course, during the great flood, the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses spent 40 days in fasting and prayer in order to prepare himself to approach God and receive the Ten Commandments. As a penance for their sins, the people of Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert before they could cross over into the Promised Land. We all know that our Lord spent 40 years fasting in the desert before he set out on his public ministry. So according to St. Leo the Great and St. Jerome, Lent goes all the way back to apostolic times. We receive this from the apostles. So why is it 40 days long? The 40 days of penance show our willingness to suffer in this life in reparation for our sins and to hold back the just anger of God, whom we have offended so much, even though he's loved us so deeply and done so much for us. So why the fasting? What's the purpose of fasting? The idea of fasting and reparation for sins stretches all the way back to Adam. Why is that? According to the great fathers and doctors of the church, St. Basil the Great, St. John Chrysostom, St. Jerome, and St. Gregory the Great, the commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve was that they were supposed to abstain from one particular kind of food. They weren't supposed to eat the fruit from one tree, but in their pride, they reached out and took of that fruit and ate it. So it's easy for us to see the symmetry there, huh? Between the first sin, which was not abstaining from food, and making reparation for sin by fasting, which is abstaining from food. There's another important aspect to fasting. When we commit a sin, our soul wills the evil, but generally speaking, our body cooperates. Because of this, penance has two essential things. We have to have contrition in our soul and mortification in our flesh. Fasting, which is eating less food than normal in reparation for sin and to appease the anger of God, has been a key bodily mortification right since the fall of Adam. Okay, so what is the relationship between meat and fasting? What is the significance there? There's two important aspects to fasting. The first is to deprive ourselves of some portion of food. And the second is abstinence, which now has the signification of depriving us ourselves to some degree from meat. The practice of abstinence goes all the way back to the days just after the flood. There are two things that happened. Noah first made wine, and meat became a regular part of men's diets. According to St. Jerome, men had picked and eaten grapes before the great flood, but Noah was the first man to have made wine. St. John Chrysostom notes that Noah first made wine for the express purpose of strengthening and cheering the labors and weakness of men, and St. Jerome points out that Noah didn't realize how powerful wine actually was, which is why he wasn't guilty of a sin when he got drunk on the first batch of wine made in the history of the world. Dom Guerranger points out that since men's lives were weakened and shortened after the flood, this is why God permitted men to eat meat, to give them additional strength 
and he inspired Noah to make wine to give them additional nourishment. And since the time of the flood, fasting has meant given up meat to some degree. As Dom Guerinjay points out, quote, this food was given to man by God out of condescension to his weakness and not as one absolutely essential for the maintenance of life. Its privation is essential to the very notion of fasting, close quote. Well, what does wine have to do with it? Isn't abstinence only with meat? In the olden days, fasting and abstinence included abstinence from wine. But now, even in the more traditionally-minded Eastern rites, like the Ukrainian Catholics and so forth, they've dropped the practice of of, uh, abstaining from wine. Most people realize for many centuries, eggs and milk products were also abstained from since they're animal food. Even to this day, they're forbidden in Eastern churches like the Ukrainian Catholics. The reason that's where we get the idea of giving each each other Easter eggs on Easter because our ancestors couldn't eat eggs until Easter. So it was a neat present. You hadn't hadn't had an egg during all that time, so giving each other Easter eggs, okay? Now... Wait a minute, do you say they couldn't eat eggs until Easter? I thought that besides Ash Wednesday, abstinence only pertained to Fridays. In recent times, that's true. It has only pertained to Fridays. But that's because we live in weak, piping times. In the olden days, that wasn't true. For roughly the first thousand years of the Latin church during Lent, only one meal a day was allowed, except on Sundays. At this one meal that was allowed, now this is for the first thousand years of our ancestors, here's what they couldn't have. They couldn't have meat, eggs, butter, cheese, milk, or wine. Those foods were also banned on Sundays. In other words, no no meat, no eggs, no butter, no lard, no cheese, none at all were eating during Lent, Sunday or not. None. If that wasn't tough enough, as if it wasn't, during Holy Week, they upped the ante. All they ate then was bread, salt, herbs, and water. And finally, just to make sure they were really serious about it, they weren't eating until after sundown. Sun, sundown. They had abstinence. They didn't eat that one meal till after sundown, and that was flat straight through right till Easter. Okay. In the 10th century then, they began to relax a little bit. The mealtime crept down till 3 o'clock. Then, by the 14th century, the meal time crept down to midday. After the 14th century, the practice of taking a small bit of food in the evening, called a collation, began to gain ground. About 200 years ago, the custom of taking a crust of bread and some coffee in the morning was introduced. Gradually, over time, the Holy See relaxed the regulations, so you could eat meat during Lent, but only once a day at the meal. First, they allowed meat on Sundays, then gradually allowed on two weekdays, then three, then four, then all five. In the U.S., in the early 1900s, now this is only a 100 years ago, during Lent, the first and last Saturdays, or the second and last Saturdays of Lent, and every Wednesday and Friday were days of abstinence. All the weekdays were days of fast, all of them, and you couldn't have meat on the first and, or on the second and last Saturdays and all the Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, there were lots of other days of fast and abstinence during the year. We're only talking in Lent, and that was, you know... This is with, there's still people alive that when they were little, this was going on. Finally, before 1967, when the current rules came into effect, during Lent, abstinence had been reduced to Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays, and fasting was required on all the weekdays, except, of course, the Feast of the Annunciation. In upcoming weeks, I'll put in the bulletin what the regulations were like in 62. Here's the bottom line right now. In our feminized, sissified times, we now have two obligatory days of fasting in the Latin Rite. Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. 
And we now have eight days of obligatory abstinence in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays of Lent. We're only required to keep two days of fasting and eight days of abstinence. Folks, we live in sissified, feminized times. What's Okay, let's go on. Making reparation for sin, is that the whole point of fasting and abstinence? No. One of the most important fruits of a good Lent is to grow in a virtue called temperance. We want to grow in the virtue of temperance. Quick review of what temperance does and what it for us. Remember, since the fall of Adam, as if I have to remind anybody, our passions are in rebellion against us, huh? Hopefully we all remember this $4 word that describes that problem, the rebellion of our passions and our sense appetites. It's concupiscence, okay? That's the word. Concupiscence is what one of the great gifts we've got from Adam. It's this battle we have all the time to keep our appetites and our passions lined up. Concupiscence means the rebellion of our sense appetites, like our passions and our emotions, against right reason. Okay? If our sense appetites, like hunger or thirst, or our passions, like anger, are in rebellion against right reason, that means that instead of being led by reason, we can easily be led by our passions and appetites. And every single one of us here knows where they'll lead us if we let them. That's one of the reasons we have confession, huh? The whole problem with concupiscence is it inclines us strongly towards sin. That's the condition we're in, our fallen condition. We're inclined strongly towards sin because of concupiscence. Thanks a lot, Adam. Okay, so we've got two choices. Either our passions serve us or we serve our passions. There's no middle ground. Either our passions serve us or we serve our passions. That's the difference, finally, between being saved and being damned. So here's where temperance comes into all this. We control our passions with the virtue of temperance. Temperance is a virtue which governs our rebellious sense appetites. What does it do? It controls our desire for sensual pleasures. It's the virtue that does battle with concupiscence. That's what temperance does. Since it governs our rebellious sense appetites, that means that temperance governs our desires for food and drink, our desires for procreation, and our desires for revenge. Temperance governs our desires for food and drink, for procreation, and for revenge. In other words, temperance is the master virtue that, that, that fights three deadly sins, the deadly sin of gluttony, the deadly sin of lust, and the deadly sin of anger. Temperance is the virtue there. So, how do we grow in temperance? We can grow in temperance by mortifying our appetite for food and drink. Right away, we can see one of the great things that Lent does for us. Besides making reparation for sin, we're growing in an absolutely key, key virtue for salvation. As we're fasting, not only are we making reparation for our sins, we're being strengthened, we're being made combat ready to deal with the actual temptations in the world. So that's the context. Now we can see the absolute importance of fasting and abstinence in our own spiritual life and in the tradition of the church. Okay? Now, here's the current legislation of the church. We've talked about what used to be. Here's the current legislation of the church which binds under the pain of mortal sin. All those who are 14 on up, all the way, all those who are 14 on up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday. So when you get older, you don't get out from that one. You have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all six of the Fridays of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. I'll repeat that. All those who are 14 on up, no upper limit, have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays of Lent. 
All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. This binds under the pain of mortal sin. Let's close. Okay, we have to keep these current rules. There's no doubt about that. But let's be serious. In order to get into heaven, you have to do penance. Our Lord says, unless you do penance, surely you shall perish. Okay, we have to do penance. We don't have to kill ourselves. We don't have to go on the Auschwitz plan or something like that. But we have to do penance, period. God said, unless you do penance, surely you will perish. It's not optional. And suddenly the bar hasn't been lowered in to get into heaven. The bar has not been lowered at all in terms of getting into heaven. The bar has been lowered in terms of our requirements that the church places on us, but the bar to get to heaven hasn't been lowered because the church doesn't have jurisdiction over that. Keep this in mind. Okay, what's the point? You have to keep the new regulations, but barring an actual infused grace from God, this is not sufficient to get and sustain the temperance that we need to deal with the world that we're living in. We live in soft, cushy, sensual times. We're surrounded by all kinds of temptations of the flesh, whether food or drink. You know, even, let me throw one out there that many people don't realize. Movies, where these revenge movies, where you have this really bad, you know, nasty, nasty bad guy, and then they turn around later on and get, get even with them. If you're giving yourself totally over to that as they're blowing the sky or up or whatever, that's a sin. Huh? That's a sin against temperance because you're allowing yourself to want to have vengeance. Oh, it's in your mind. I know. We can sin in our thoughts. So we have to have control of our temper. We have to con- have control of our desires to procreate. And we have to con- have control of our desires to eat and drink. Huh? All these things we need from temperance, we can't get it with- without more serious application. The church has lowered the bar in terms of what she requires of us. But heaven hasn't, okay? That's reality. You're not going to get away with it. Dom Garanger wrote almost 140 years ago. This is 140 years ago. Quote, How few Christians do we meet who are strict observers of Lent, even in its present mild form? And must there not result from this ever-growing spirit of immortification a general effeminacy of character, which will lead at last to frightful social disorders? Those nations among whose people the spirit and practice of penance are extinct are heaping up against themselves the wrath of God and provoking his justice to destroy them by one or other of these scourges, civil discord or conquest. There is an inconsistency which must strike every thinking mind, the observance of the Lord's Day on the one side, the inobservance of days of penance and fasting on the other. The word of God is unmistakable. Unless we do penance, we shall perish. Close quote, the incorrupt Dom Guéranger. Last, this is something to really meditate on. In an encyclical written in 1741, Pope Benedict XIV states, quote, The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. By it we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ. By it, we avert the scourges of divine justice. By it, we gain strength against the princes of darkness, for it shields us with heavenly help. Should mankind grow remiss in their observance of Lent, it will be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to the Catholic religion, and a danger to Christian souls.
Neither can it be doubted that such negligence would become the source of misery to the world, a public calamity, and a private woe. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. That's worth rereading. The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. By it we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ. By it we avert the scourges of divine justice. By it we gain strength against the princes of darkness, for it shields us with heavenly help. Should mankind grow remiss in their observance of Lent, it would be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to the Catholic religion, and a danger to Christian souls. Neither can it be doubted that such negligence would become the source of misery to the world, a public calamity, and a private woe. We need to be serious about Lent. When you pick things to do for Lent, run them by your confessor. The way the devil works on pious souls is try to get you to go to extremes. Don't do that. That's why confessors are there. Just say, Father, this is what I'm thinking about doing for Lent. And if he says no, you must obey. He'll tell you what to do. That's why we're here, to make sure that you have a good Lent, but not an extreme Lent. Don't go to extremes. The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. By it, we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ.